Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to be talking about air quality on the program today. We're responding to an email from a UPR listener uh, who uh, challenges us to uh, treat the topic uh, a little more scientifically, a little more systematically. We're going to do that on the program. We're going to attempt to do that on the program today with uh, USU air pollution experts Randy Martin and Roger Coulomb. Later in the program, Matt Pachenza with Heal Utah will look at uh, bills addressing air quality uh, at the Utah legislature. First, some unfinished business from a few days ago when we uh, had a debate on Count My Vote. Count My Vote versus Keep Our Caucus. You uh, may well remember that. Got a lot of response. These two responses came in after the program or near the end of the program. I wasn't able to get them in, so I wanted to get them in here. This is from Brian in Hyde Park. He says, I went to my caucus last year. It was very apparent that Extreme Views delegates would have easily won out if not for participation of more moderate public that came to the caucus. Bob Bennett is more conservative than Ronald Reagan, yet Bennett was thrown out of office. This tells me that the caucus system, when left to itself without general public input, tips to those who are most vocal, the extreme right or left of both parties. How is that representative of general voters? That's uh, Brian's comment. And then we were to have had Senator Todd Weiler, Republican from Woods Cross, in the program. Uh, His uh, schedule uh, did not permit him to come on the program, but he uh, sent a couple of points regarding Count My Vote. He says, Count My Vote has two fatal flaws, in my opinion. One, no runoff after direct open primary. If you have 12 candidates, then one could win with 15% of the vote. Two, a Republican running for governor would have to gather three times more signatures to get on the ballot than a Democrat. I'm not sure if that's even constitutional. He says, I respect Mitt Romney, but question whether he's even aware of the two flaws I've identified above. So thanks to Senator Weiler. And thanks to all of you who commented. That conversation continues at our website, upr.org. Now we turn to a subject which concerns us all, uh, a little less concerning this year. Uh, we, we had some bad inversion days, and then a series of storms came through. And so, thankfully, air quality has been a bit better. Uh, but we were still all concerned about the, t- the topic. And uh, UPR listener Derek Butcher emailed us after our previous program about a month ago. He said he's pleased that UPR has devoted a fair amount of airtime to discussions of Utah's air quality. He says it's great because it's an important issue that affects us all. He says it's evident that we have serious haze issues with immediate health impacts for many Utah's residents. But he says, I'm writing to challenge the network to approach the issue a little more scientifically. I wish we we could break down the problem more systematically. And so we have with us today Randy Martin, USU Associate Research Professor of Environmental Engineering, uh, who uh, joins us on the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Roger Coulomb, uh, USU Professor of Toxicology. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. And uh, you gentlemen uh, make air pollution a, a, a study. I guess that's your major focus of your, or a major focus of your studies. Yeah, I've been, I've been working on it since I came to the Valley in 2000, kind of landed in a nice lab to do a lot of, of actual research and right in my backyard. And uh, Roger Coulomb, you, you studied toxicology, the effect on the body, right? Yeah, the, the biomedical aspects, uh, toxicology, the potential human health um, effects. Right. And uh, so we do have some questions. Um, so we'll, but we'll start with Derek. Well, by the way, later on in the program, we're going to be uh, taking a look at air quality legislation. 
uh, at this session. Uh, many bills moving or not moving through the legislature uh, dealing with this topic. Of course, uh, leading up to the legislative session, we had a big rally on the steps of the Capitol. We talked with organizers at that rally in January. So we're going to get we're going to check back in and see where that legislation is with Matt Pachenza with uh, with Heal Utah. Let's jump right in. Um, and we appreciate this email from from Derek Derek Butcher who uh, signs his email Derek Butcher PhD. I'm not sure what his field is. Uh, he says UPR has devoted a fair amount of airtime discussions of air quality, which I, I read. He says important uh, topic and uh, challenges us to uh, approach this more systematically. So today I heard programming that mentioned some aspects of air quality and then mentioned a few pollution sources without explaining the difference or why certain types had in more impact on air quality. At the end was a challenge to listeners to look for ways to curb unnecessary driving and to use public transportation. That's all well and good, Derek says. But I wish we could break down the problem more systematically. Essentially, emissions in the valley could be broken down into components, and he gives four. So perhaps we could start with uh, particulates. Randy Martin, uh, for those who've been living in a cave, maybe air quality is better there. Um, particulate matter, PM 2.5 is what we hear about. Maybe give us the, the crash course on particulates. Okay, I'll try. Try to be brief. Um, particulate matter in the air exists in all sorts of size ranges. Uh, we have what we call TSP, which is total suspended particulates, all the particles in the air. Uh, PM 10, which is then a subset of that, which is all particles smaller than 10 microns. And PM 2.5, which is all particles smaller than 2.5 microns. And the reason those designations are important is uh, the PM10 size fraction, you can breathe into your respiratory system, but they don't penetrate very deeply, the, the larger particles. The stuff smaller than 2.5 microns can penetrate all the way down into your, uh, your alveoli portions of your lung, possibly even get into the uh, oxygen exchange uh, regions. Um, and Dr. Coulomb can answer more of that in question, but particles themselves are actually from lots of different sources. Uh, in, in, in our world, we kind of divide five basic uh, areas where particles can come from. As far as source types, uh, there are road dust uh, and crustal elements, basically just the dirt. Um, there are what we call organic carbons, uh, unburned fuel, or actually secondary organic aerosols, particles that are formed from various compounds in the air that are organic in nature. We have black carbon, which is soot. Uh, which, is a lot, which is what a lot of people assume particles are, just soot, but that's not quite true. And then we have two, set, two types of particles that are what we call secondary particles that are formed in the atmosphere, and these are ammonium sulfate and ammonium nitrate. And by looking at all those different classifications, we get a pretty good idea what the local sources are in any given region. And, and so then that has policy implications. You mentioned unburned fuel. And that, that's what we're getting at with emissions testing? Uh, not really directly, well, not so much directly as organic particles. Uh, mm. What we're looking at really with emission testing is are those secondary particles, the ammonium nitrate, the ammonium sulfate. Ammonium nitrate here in the valley, we don't have much ammonium sulfate, whereas they have a little bit more sulfate down on the Wasatch Front. Uh, and by looking at vehicles, we're looking for those raw emissions of oxides of nitrogen and VOCs, which then photochemically go through a very complex series of reactions to form the ammonium nitrate and the ammonium sulfate. Mm. Uh, now, in a, in, a, in a presentation, I believe you gave, uh, it, you were stating some statistics. You were talking, I think, about uh, the, the fact that if we can catch, as it were, uh, just a certain percentage of inefficient uh, cars, mm -hmm. then it would have an effect. There's been a whole debate uh, uh, in various areas where emissions testing has come, and, and to Cache Valley has come quite recently. Big debate preceding that, and it, it, I think it still goes on. 
Yeah, um, from studies that we've did 10 years ago, uh, we found that between 5 and 10% of the vehicles in the valley uh, would not pass an emission inspection for either NOx or VOCs, and those 5 and 10% were responsible for 25 to 50% of the emissions. So identifying those gross emitters is, in my mind, a very uh, quick and easy way to minimize the emission of the NOx and the VOC compounds into the atmosphere. And some of the early uh, reports back from the IM program here in the Valley are right in line with those estimates as far as what we consider to be gross emitters. So so you're, you're saying it, it can have a, a good effect? Oh, yeah. Just, I think it'll you, definitely catch have a just a few effect. of those cars. Yeah. Yeah. A small number makes a big difference. Now, Derek, uh, when he talks about NOx, he just has this one sentence. He, he said, NOx is not a big issue in Utah. It's also pretty well taken care of by modern catalytic converters. If the catalytic converters are working correctly, then, yeah, they do do a real good job of cleaning it up. Uh, not all the cars, as we know, are out there operating properly. And to say NOx is, isn't a problem here in Utah isn't really quite correct. As I said, uh, it's the NOx that can go on and form the nitrate side of the ammonium nitrate. Also, uh, the NOx contributes to ozone photochemistry primarily in the summer. So NOx is, is an issue. NOx by itself at the levels here in Utah aren't uh, very harmful to human health, but it's that secondary uh, particle and ozone formation that's of concern. Hmm. We're talking about air quality on the program today. This is a, an issue that concerns us all. And I, I think and this is human nature. This year, as opposed to last year, uh, Dr. Coulomb, uh, we're a little less concerned about it because we haven't had <laughs> the bad inversion. It was horrible last year. And it started out bad this year. Then we had a series of storms come through. It kind of cleaned out the air. And, and so we've sort of drifted our attention, including on this program. We haven't had as many programs. Um, so it, I, you were saying before we went on there, interesting scientists like you, I guess, to, to do you know really good work and get a lot of samples, uh, paradoxically need some bad inversion days. Well, personally, we would prefer clean air, but scientifically, we prefer the dirtiest we can get to, right. to obtain lots of samples. You know, we, one, one thing I might add to Dr. Martin's uh, comment just a second ago is that ammonium nitrate forms a majority of the particles we have here in northern Utah, but it's, uh, we've, we've actually tested raw ammonium nitrate with human lung cells, and they're fairly inert, but it's the other material, so roughly 50% of the other stuff that's on there that causes our uh, causes concern in terms of public health. And the other the other thing, too, uh, Dr. Martin is probably going to get to this, is that uh, one of the critiques of vehicle emissions testing is that it it would potentially reduce uh, PM 2.5 between, what, 4 and 10%. Yeah. And our research here in Cache Valley, as well as in numerous locations around the world, show that there is very there's there's really no safe level of exposure and small reductions are uh, are associated with big paybacks in public health so even a 4 to 10% reduction in pm2.5 is going to have a big payback in terms of uh, having a healthier valley it won't get us all the way there but uh it's it's a step hmm. i want to follow up with with the health effects um but, but let me uh, open the phone lines uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495. We would love your questions on air pollution. We have uh, experts from Utah State University with us. We're responding to a listener email who wanted us to uh, look at the science and treat this systematically, and we're trying our best to do that on the program today. So we thank Derek for his email to precipitate this this conversation. 
And you could join your questions and concerns with his at 1-800-826-1495. You can join us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, where Ruth Williams, uh, Ruth Ann Albrecht, uh, Terry Guy, and uh, Joseph Anderson have liked our post. And we have a picture here with uh, Hayes <laughs> hanging over uh, Cache Valley. And that's a, that's a picture that we're all very familiar with. A little less this year, but of course it's still uh, a concern. So it's 1-800-826-1495 uh, or upraxis at gmail.com. By the way, an incentive for you to join the uh, program, all you have to do is call up. We have uh, tickets to the uh, Wasserman Piano Festival here on the Utah State University campus. We have two pairs of tickets to the uh, March 6th performance with Daniel Trifonov and Sergei Babayan, dual piano recital, USU Performance Hall, 7.30 p.m. Uh, we have tickets to a couple of performances on Thursday, March 20th as well, Vadim Kolodenko and uh, Sean Chen. Just uh, let our producer know which uh, you want. And uh, this is a great opportunity for you. The first uh, person who calls in and asks for these, we have a pair of tickets, a pair of season or, or festival passes, which allows you to get into all the any performance, including master classes. So that's the Wasserman for, uh, Festival uh, on the USU uh, campus. It's ongoing the next couple of weeks, and uh, you can get a pair of tickets just for your call today. 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Uh, so I wanted to follow up, um, Dr. Coulomb, maybe take us through the, the particulate matter that uh, Dr. Martin was talking about and, uh, and give us the primer of how this affects our health. And, and, and we know it, anecdotally, we know it does. I, I have friends and acquaintances who, uh, when it was really bad earlier this year, were, uh, you know, were, were hacking up their lungs and uh, increasing numbers of people wearing air masks to try to, try to deal with this. Maybe take us through the, the science here. Yeah, what particulate matter does, and we know this from studies around the world, uh, it's it's uh, associated with some significant public health uh, manifestations. So, uh, what again, what the data indicates is that there is no safe level of exposure, and and that even short term exposures can result in numerous diseases, mostly confined to the cardiovascular, cardiopulmonary uh, tract, but. There's associations with other diseases that research is now just starting to peel back in terms of maybe Alzheimer's disease, autism. Uh, but we know that um, PM 2.5 exposure, even at small concentrations, is, is associated with stroke, heart attack, uh, cardiovascular disease, asthma. Um, and there's really no group that is immune. There are higher risk groups, but that doesn't leave us uh, protected at all. And research here at, in Cache Valley in collaboration with Dr. Martin, we've pretty much confirmed this to be true with our particular brand of PM 2.5 here. And again, as everyone knows, uh, on several occasions every year, we're the highest in the country. So um, again, short-term exposures are, are detrimental, long-term exposures are detrimental. And so we are doing research to identify the risks to be uh, a little more certain about what we're facing, but also um, I, I think we believe that our research is is, uh, is um, having some positive results in terms of vehicle emissions testing. That's, that's one positive thing that's come out of perhaps uh, the, the, the discussion and the sense of urgency we've had from mm -hmm. time to time about our dirty air. 
So you're saying there's no safe level. No. Um, and I guess as a polity, as, as a community, we can, you know, we, we have to do this incrementally. But in the meantime, you know, we have emissions testing. That's reducing it somewhat. Uh, in the meantime, we've still got, still got some really bad days. Um, and, and some of us are building up some ill health effects. That's true. And the best we can do now is when we have these episodes is to recommend people to avoid strenuous activity and stay indoors. I mean, if that's if that's the best we can do, then 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 uh, you know it's too bad. But this yeah. is this is our situation. But you're you're correct. We approach things incrementally and try to improve things on a uh, incremental basis. But uh, things like vehicle vehicle emissions testing, greater investment in public transportation, um, other things like this will all contribute to reducing this. And again, even small incremental changes will give us. Uh, a big payback in, in increased public health. Mm. Now, when, when the alerts go out, uh, usually, you know, from Department of Health or whatever, uh, usually groups are mentioned. Uh, children, the elderly, these groups are more vulnerable? They are more vulnerable, but we want to make sure the message is that other people don't feel sanguine about this, that they can, that they're invulnerable to it because there's really no safe uh, level of exposure and there's no population group out there that is immune to the effects. Mm. Now, uh, if I can use myself as an example, um, I haven't really had any ill effects that I can tell, even though I can, you know, hardly see through the air. Um, Certain people are just more vulnerable to it. And and might I be building, though I have no symptoms, might I be building up some some ill effects, which will then manifest themselves. Right. Much of toxicology research has to do, it concerns itself with uh, modest changes that occur over a long period of time. So, so we actually look at the effects on the total genome and uh, the expression of inflammatory genes, markers of disease. And uh, by the way, we've seen this in the clinic, in two clinical trials, even small incremental changes. So one, two, three percent increases we, we can detect in the laboratory. Mm. Yeah, amazing. Uh, Dr. Martin, I want to, want to come back to you and maybe reiterate for us you know, what is that stuff in the air that we're seeing? It's different for, for different places. Maybe take Cache Valley. Well, Cache Valley's, as we've mentioned before, uh, the, the PM mass is dominated by ammonium nitrate. Uh, on an average day, it makes up about 50% of the mass. On days when it gets really bad, it's up to 85 to 90% of the mass. But we have about 20% or so of organic carbon material, about 4% uh, of... Um, ammonium sulfate. We still have a few sulfate sources, primarily diesel fuel. Um, and uh, we've got less than, than 3%, I think the number is, of, of dust crustal elements because when we have the problem, it's snow covered, so we don't have a lot of dust available to us outside of road dust. Uh, and then the, uh, the other small percentage is, is black carbon or soot. Um, so from those breakdowns, we get a pretty good idea where the bulk of our problem lies, and that's with primarily the ammonium nitrate with a secondary uh, target of the organic uh, portion of the aerosols. And as a toxicologist, Dr. Coulomb, what, which of those concerns you the most? Well, as I, as I mentioned, our, uh, we've done a few experiments on ammonium nitrate per se, and it really doesn't seem to be all that significant. It's the other stuff. So uh, the soot, for example, this is one of the classes of uh, chemicals that, ca- that have numerous carcinogens, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, in fact, one of the first class of chemicals uh, 
determined to be carcinogenic. So this is the same material you find in chimney soot. And um, people in industrial hygiene and public health remember Percival Pott. He was a, a physician that noticed chimney sweeps in London having a certain kind of cancer because they were breathing in this soot uh, uh, as part of their occupation. So this is just one of many class of chemicals we're investigating. And they're all of concern. We, we know um, that that they cause cancer, they cause diseases. And so we've split our research, um, the collaborative work I'm doing with Randy Martin, we split it up in terms of uh, in the laboratory using human lung cells and in the clinic using uh, actual people mm. and taking blood samples and, and doing um, pulmonary testing. Mm. I just wonder parenthetically, uh, both of you gentlemen who study this on a daily basis, when we have a bad batter it out, I'll bet you, you guys take this seriously. Oh, do you <laughs> we're, we're, we're on the phone yeah. uh, together as, as soon as we see something setting up and, and planning to take samples. And yeah, uh, yeah. so it's actually, to, but, to a scientist, it's... it's. Uh, but I mean, for your personal health. You, oh. You, you know, what do you... I guess you have to go out in that bad air to take the samples. But what would you advise your families, you know, to put on air masks, stay indoors? What do you... Well, pr the problem is most air, mas air masks would do nothing. Okay. You, you need a um, you know more expensive hazmat type with a canister that that will exclude these very small particles. So you need it need something with a canister then. Uh, well, well they're, they're, really... we've talked about this. Yeah, there are masks yeah. that, that basically have the canister built in, the filter built in, but they have to be well fitted around your face. Um, yeah. And so then you have the added breathing obstruction of the filter itself yeah. uh, that makes it just hard to breathe, but you're yeah. not breathing the, the air. The, the trick there is you do have to have these expensive masks that, that fit quite well around your face, don't allow any in leakage. And as I mentioned before in this program, it's it's just amazing to me that we're even talking about air masks on you know <laughs> in our regular life. But but uh, some people have gotten to that point. Uh, we are talking with uh, Roger Coulomb. He's a toxicologist, a professor at Utah State University. Randy Martin. He is uh, a professor, associate uh, research professor of environmental engineering. They are air pollution experts, and we're talking about air pollution on the program today. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we'll follow up more with uh, from Derek Butcher, his email, which precipitated this program. Thank you, Derek. And we have a couple of other listener questions. You can join this conversation. Hope that you'll get your question or comment in. Love to know what you think, what your experience has been at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com. Don't forget, uh, pairs of tickets to the Wasserman Festival, Piano Festival, on the Utah State University campus. That uh, starts tomorrow and runs, looks, uh, into April. Uh, we have uh, pairs of tickets for some of those performances and a pair of festival passes, which gets you into all the performances um, and uh, including backstage and master classes. So if you're a piano fan, you're in northern Utah, uh, first caller gets those. More following this break. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and Utah State University's Center for Women and Gender, providing a professional and social climate to enhance opportunities through learning, discovery, and engagement. Information at womenandgender.usu.edu. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. This week we're looking at how a career in food is made with two people who have built their careers on bread. We head to Tallahassee for first-rate soul food with the Stearns and what do congressional vegetarians do for lunch? Join us. That's The Splendid Table from APM. Tune in today at 10 o'clock. 
Thanks for joining us. For Access Utah today, we are discussing air pollution. It's a topic that's, uh, I think, receded uh, a little bit in urgency because we've had a series of storms come through. But uh, if you'll recall, just about a month ago, we were on the air responding to uh, some really bad air days and a rally at the state capitol. By the way, later in this program, in about 10 minutes, we'll be talking with Matt Pachenza, Policy Director for Yield Utah, taking a look at bills addressing air quality at the legislature. Right now, we are addressing concerns from uh, UPR listener Derek Butcher, who emailed us after that previous program about a month ago uh, to challenge us to uh, take a look at the science and to treat this topic a little more systematically, and we're trying to do that on the program today. What we're also hoping to do is respond to your questions and comments, and uh, you can uh, get those to us. Respond to participate in the program at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or on our Facebook page. And by the way, uh, Wasserman Festival, Piano Festival tickets are available to you just for your call. Um, we have uh, tickets for the March 6th performance, just coming up a couple of days. We have uh, tickets for the March 20th, and uh, the, 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 the big prize here, a pair of festival passes to get you into any of the performances, master classes, behind the scenes, whatever you'd like. The festival uh, starts tomorrow and goes into April here in, on the campus of Utah State University. The number is 1-800-826-1495. So let me uh, just uh, finish out uh, Derek's uh, point on particulates and have you address this. We've, we've addressed uh, NOx and uh, then we a couple of other things that uh, Derek uh, wants us to address. He says uh, particulates. These are really just soot from incomplete combustion. This is an issue for inefficient motors and furnaces. Efficient ones have little or no particulates. From what I understand, this is the bulk of Utah's inversion haze issue, and to tackle it, you need to identify common sources of incomplete combustion. Efficient engines and catalytic converters have little impact compared to, say, poorly tuned older diesel engines. So targeting these would have little impact on inversion haze. So what do you, what do you think, uh, Professor Martin? Well, we sort of covered that, that particles aren't just soot. They're, they're made up of a lot of different things. Uh, on the other side, though, he's, he's right that... Inefficient engines, as we've mentioned, are the high emitters. And, and to identify those, we need some type of inspection program, uh, in which we now have in place. Uh, so I think we're on the road to taking care of a lot of that. But again, we have to understand that all particles aren't just soot. There are lots of other compounds there. Mm. Uh, and I guess you have to identify the source of each one of those kinds right. of things. Right. And, and knowing and what the compounds it. are, you can then attack the sources. Yeah. Um, but again, our, our particles are formed through atmospheric chemistry. It's not a tailpipe part, particle problem. It's it, They are formed in the atmosphere. Mm. You're talking about Cache Valley? Right. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, and, and, and similar in the yeah. Wasatch Front as okay. well. What about the uh, – There's an. I hear there's an increasing ozone problem out in the Ona Basin. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, there is uh, – and, and the unusual thing about that out there is it's a wintertime ozone problem. Uh, and there's some special meteorology that goes on just like here and along the Wasatch Front that contributes to that. Uh, plus, they have an abundance of what we call the precursor sources, NOx and VOCs. And so when the conditions are meteorologically right, their ozone can shoot through the roof during the, during the wintertime in particular. Hmm. What causes this? Uh, it's, it's the VOCs and the hydrocarbons primarily related to the uh, oil and gas exploration mm -hmm. and production yeah. uh, facilities out there. Um, this year, they didn't have much of an ozone issue. The, the winter wasn't very strong. Uh, the snow went away early, although they approached it, uh, some high levels of ozone in December, but not so much in January and February. Uh, there's been a huge study going on out there for the last three or four years, um, trying to identify the exact chemistry and causes, and so we can uh, apply the right remediation techniques. Yeah. 
Um, so I had a question here from a listener, which, which would uh, maybe apply here, uh, talking about activity in the atmosphere. You've talked a little bit about that. So th- that has a big effect, right? The, the atmosphere and what's going on in, in, the, in the climate can, I guess, ameliorate or, or exacerbate. Right. All, all of our pollution problems, or most of our pollution problems, uh, occur under what we call inverted situations, which is a meteorological phenomenon. Uh, when, when we have these stable layers in our atmosphere that don't allow vertical or horizontal mixing, uh, our pollution allows to build up or go through this rapid atmospheric chemistry to a rapidly uh, increase in concentration. Mm. So, yeah, it's definitely related to meteorology. It's related to topography. And those are things we can't do anything about. Yeah. So we need to understand what's going on so we know what we are regulatorily allowed to put into the atmosphere. Right, right. And we've had inversions here in Cache Valley before before the arrival of, of Homo sapiens to Cache Valley. It's just now we're putting chemicals into it. Mm. So these are, these are regularly occurring stagnant air patterns. And so the big difference now is we have 100,000 residents in Cache Valley. We've got 100,000 dairy cows and other livestock. And so these all conspire to uh, contribute to the problem that we have. Right. We have an email that's come in. This is from uh, Gene Laun, a friend of the program, who's uh, who's very up on this issue and concerned about it. Uh, she says, uh, thanks to Drs. Martin and Coulomb and others, uh, we know, uh, thanks to you and others, we know lots about the science of Cache Valley's winter air pollution. We also know that it takes more than education and information to get people to change their behavior. Have scientists working on this air pollution problem considered adding a behavioral psychologist to their team? What about that, gentlemen? Well, we have just recently submitted a proposal to NIH, and we have reached out to these other more public disciplines uh, to help us with that. Um, So, yeah, the answer is yes. Yeah. So we'll... I guess you'll keep us up to date on what happens there. Yeah, and I also take some solace, I guess, in within the last two years, there has been more of a public uh, outcry and organization to try to do something about air quality as we see with the legislature this year. Right. Uh, yeah, that's a big component of it, the behavioral aspect. And uh, we, we, we've had uh, some talk on that on this program, including with, with Dr. Lowndes. That's a good, good point. Thanks, thanks uh, Gene Lowndes, for that. I, I think I, another positive thing, if I can just add, is, is uh, the election of Dr. Ed Redd, a MD from, from Cache Valley, who now sits on the state legislature and is vocal about this. And he understands the health risks, and right. he's worked with us in the, in the past and actually has come up with some very nice calculations about the public health cost of a season of inversions. And so, you know, he's um, in the 2004 season, He uh, his best estimate that it costs Castro Valley residents in terms of uh, um, health impact, lost wages, uh, sick days, uh, mortalities, uh, up, upwards of $25 million. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty stark figures. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. We're talking about air pollution on the program today uh, with a couple of experts from Utah State University, Randy Martin and Roger Coulomb. We're going to be joined uh, shortly by Matt Pachenza with Heal Utah to uh, take us through the bills at the legislature treating uh, air uh, pollution. And you're welcome to join this conversation. I hope that you will. 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com. And don't forget Wasserman Festival tickets. Um, and Terry's shaking her head. They're all gone? Okay, well, great. Thanks for the interest. Uh, so including the festival pass? 
We still have the festival pass, so there's an option for you. That's the one I'd go for if I were, <laughs> if I were, if I were able. I'm, I'm eligible, uh, but that gets you behind the scenes into any of the performances, into the master classes. Uh, next caller can get the uh, the festival pass for the Wasserman Piano Festival at Utah State University. Anyway, back to uh, air pollution, and we do have a caller on the line, Justin in Hyde Park. Justin, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yes, I, hopefully I didn't miss it. Uh... In the program, I know earlier you're talking about the uh, particulates and uh, and uh, that sort of thing. I'm wondering about uh, about pollution from uh, from diesel engines. That's always I've heard before uh, that the culprit's mainly gasoline engines, but I'm always and that diesel doesn't play a, a significant role in uh, in pollution. But every time I see a large truck go by. You know, billowing out plumes of black smoke. I think that just can't be good. So I wonder if they could if they could address that possibly. Uh, Dr. Martin, maybe start with you. Uh, yeah, diesel engines can be bad polluters. The 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 new diesel engines, 2007 and newer, uh, are really pretty good. And a lot of the diesel engines are cleaner than a lot of the gasoline engines nowadays. Uh, some of the older ones can be bad. There's no doubt about it. Uh, unfortunately, the emission control technology on diesel engines did not keep pace in the early years with, with automobile and gasoline engines. And so they are allowed to have higher emissions. Uh, and the IM program that we have here in the Cache Valley, as well as along the Wasatch Front, is different for diesel engines than it is for automobile engines with different uh, breakpoints at different years. Um, the best I can tell you is we're aware of that and uh, they're built into the models that we have. Um, and as I mentioned, the, the newer diesel engines in particular are quite a bit cleaner. Mm-hmm. And with these new Tier 3 standards coming out from the EPA, they're even going to be cleaner. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's getting better. Does that answer your question, Justin? Do, do we have you still with us? Thank you very much. Yeah, well, thank you, Justin. I appreciate your call. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, Justin called 1-800-826-1495. You can as well. 1-800-826-1495. And uh, you can also reach us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. have a couple of other listener questions. I'll direct these to, to you, Dr. Coulomb. Um, one is, a listener wondered, I've wondered this as well. I, I think I might know the answer. Uh, why is it better indoors? I mean, you know, air is air. Well, actually, that's a, that's a better question for Dr. Martin because he's oh. actually done this. But uh, okay. so uh, I'll let you answer that. All right. A lot of it has to do with what our particles are made up of. Uh, This ammonium nitrate compound in particular uh, is very temperature sensitive, uh, and it is favored formation at low temperatures or outside temperatures. When you bring that same air inside, uh, those compounds revolatilize into ammonia gas and nitric acid and are deposited very quickly. Mm. Um, So it it goes away rapidly uh, just due to the heating of the air. Mm. Most home filters are not built to uh, filter out that small particles. We've done several studies over the years looking at indoor-outdoor. And just this year, we did a studies of um, 18 different facilities around the valley, public and private areas, uh, looking at uh, the difference between indoor and outdoor air. Now, unfortunately, as we mentioned, it wasn't as polluted of atmosphere this year as we would have liked, but we did catch some of the time in January when it was bad. And it all verified what we had seen before. Uh, the indoor air is generally much, much cleaner than the outdoor air. So it's roughly 70% lower in terms roughly, of... Roughly, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. So... Uh, it's cleaner, but not a pristine environment. Yeah, I've I, I wondered about that, so I appreciate that question. Um, 
and I have friends who who have had you know indoors have, have been having problems on an increased air day. So I guess that's that. That you know, yeah, it's seventy percent better. Yeah, it's seventy percent. It's a it's a linear relationship yeah. between indoor and outdoor. So as the outdoor rises, the indoor rises as well. Yeah. This question was interesting to me. Uh, This uh, listener says, uh, cold in the air is assumed to worsen um, the air quality problem. So, but it's warm in your lungs. So what's the chemistry there? Is is that changing, uh, is those particulars, whatever it is, is that changing in your lungs? So in other words, does the warming in your lungs help mitigate the effects? Uh, Well, as Dr. Martin pointed out, these particles actually become deposited in various points in a person's airways. So some of the larger particles tend to be trapped in the uh, nasal pharyngeal region. The smaller particles get deep down into the alveolar spaces and can actually get into general circulation. So in animal studies, we can find PM in the brain, in various organs. Um, so the, the, the dissociation chemistry in the lung would not be rapid enough to completely dissociate. But the other point is, and we want to remind your, your listeners, is that the ammonium nitrate is simply a nucleus onto which other dangerous chemicals lodge. And so um, once, once those uh, chemical, that chemical mix that's part of the particle gains entry into the lung, they're there. And mm-hmm. so they become absorbed. And, and, uh, and so once absorption occurs, that's when the disease process begins. Mm. Uh, we welcome in Matt Pacenzo, Policy Director for Heal Utah. Matt, to welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. Uh, so I uh, just want to get one more of these scientific questions into our experts uh, here, and then we want to get into um, the, the bills that are moving through the legislature or not moving. Uh, curious to see what has happened uh, with at the legislature. Check back in. Uh, this question from a listener, I found this very interesting. Uh, so when uh, this, this air pollution, be it particulate matter or whatever it is that we you know, can actually see in the air, uh, when it falls or when it goes somewhere, where does it go? So that's in, in the soil, the water, and then does it just recycle around, or what? Uh... Yes, uh, it, when it when it leaves the valley, if you will, it's because we have a dynamic meteorological system, mm-hmm. and it disperses out, and so some of it could be transported a long ways away, you know, into different regions. A lot of it will be deposited up into the mountains, into the ecosystem. So yeah, it deposits down to the ecosystem eventually. And and when it gets to the ecosystem, I guess uh, soil water is, does it become benign in that? Form? Oh no! Uh, depending on the concentration, exactly what it's made up of, it can cause other ecosystem effects. Uh, an example, if if you'll let me, is is ammonia. Uh, ammonia is a big part of our problem in the gas phase here in the valley, and, and along the Wasatch Front. But the other side of that is, if we t- were to capture it totally, say in, in in liquid systems, and allow it to run into our runoff then it creates a problem in our streams and our lagoons because excess ammonia creates algae blooms and everything else. So it, it does matter where it deposits and what it can do. Mm. Let's turn to Matt Pacenza. I'm, I'm curious, We, you know, I, I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the program, it's, it's human nature. If you have a really bad air day, a series of air days, bad air days, like last year, it really focuses the mind. If you have a series of storms come through and you're not faced with this as much, you tend to, your, your attention tends to wander. At least some people's, and I'll raise my hand on that. Um, but we well remember the, the furor at the beginning of the legislature. Um, and so there are quite a few bills that were introduced, and we want to check in, Matt Pachenza, see, see where some of those are. What's, uh, what's the top of your list, the top couple of bills that you're paying attention to? 
Yeah, I think overall it, it so far has been a pretty positive legislative session. And But as soon as I say that, I would add that, you know, there's a lot of critical stuff yet to come. So there are bills that have moved forward through committees, which we're very happy about, but they await votes from, you know, full chambers and then ultimately the governor's signature. And the other process is there are bills that are passing which require funding, and that decision in a somewhat confusing and complicated way is made a little bit diff- uh, separate from the decision as to whether to pass a bill. So we're pretty positive overall, but you know the next 10 days, or really eight days, are, are critical to, to sort of whether we see this overall as sort of you know an okay session or, or a pretty darn good one. Um, in terms of the most positive bills, I would probably just sort of cherry pick two, although there really are quite a few you could talk about. And those two are, um, first of all, a pair of bills which both seek to um, remove language in current state law, which forbids our air quality regulators from making rules that are stricter than um, corresponding federal regulations. And this has served over the years to sort of tie the hands and be a pretty significant obstacle in the way of coming up with sort of innovative solutions for Utah's particular air quality problem, which I, I am sure the guests prior to me did an excellent job of describing. Um, so the, there are two bills, one's a little better than the other. The one in the Senate is SB 164. The one in the House is HB 121. And those two bills have each passed the committee and are each close, even today perhaps, um, going to receive uh, votes from the full bodies, and then we'll sort of see how that all shakes out. Um, the second bill is um, a bill to allow cities and counties to raise a sales tax in order to provide additional funding for mass transit. And I think that's a, that's a big deal because ultimately when we look at sort of some of the, the big picture solutions to these various categories of emissions, the, the truth is that we can do some things without spending money, but we need to spend some money too. And we need to spend some money on buses and drivers and increasing the frequency of buses and, and that kind of thing. And so this local option sales tax, as it's called, um, could go a ways toward doing that. And there's a, a bill from Representative uh, Jerry Anderson, I believe, and the number's escaping me, but that passed a House committee last week. And so we'll see how that does in the full House. So those are a couple off the top of my head that are moving forward, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff about electric vehicles, about um, a, a wide range of incentives to get sort of dirty things off the road and out of people's uh, backyards and, and a bunch of other stuff. So we're we're reasonably positive, but we're keeping a close eye on things over the next eight days. And by the way, uh, Heal Utah has a very helpful uh, list of bills. Uh, you can go to their website, uh, healutah.org. More with Matt Pachenza. Uh, and by the way, we have with us uh, uh, air pollution experts from Utah State University, Roger Coulomb and Randy Martin. And you're welcome to join this uh, conversation. We have another about eight minutes left. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Um, or upraxis at gmail.com. Dr. Coulomb. Yeah, I understand in po- today's political environment, when people hear about a, a tax increase or cost to regulation, there is a, a an aversion in, in the minds of many people. But I, I, I would appeal to, uh, you know, the, uh, our state, our state representatives and and our, our and our citizens, fellow Utahns, to consider it as an investment. If if we know, for example, that just in the 2004 season, Dr. Ed Red calculated that it cost just in Cache Valley 24 million dollars in in uh, decreased lifespan, loss of life, uh, decreased productivity, increased medical costs. This is just one year. 
25, $24, 25000000 million in cash value. So multiply that around the, the Wasatch Front, and we get a sense of who really pays for this. So if there is a, a, uh, an aversion to raising revenue to, f- to fix this problem, another way to look at that is an investment in our future, in our future health and, and uh, the health of our children. We do have another caller, uh, Tom in Logan. Tom, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Thank you. Um, I know Salt Lake City has uh, adopted an idling control ordinance, and Logan is considering that. I'm wondering how uh, Dr. Martin, Dr. Coulomb feel uh, about that uh, in in Logan City. Is that a good idea, bad idea? Uh, I, I think it's a good idea. Uh, in my opinion, is if you're not putting air pollutants into the air, you're not contributing to the problem, at least not as much. Uh, there's been some debate about what the magic time period is before you should shut off your car. Is it one minute? Is it two minutes? Is it three minutes? Most of the current catalytic converters uh, become efficient after about 30 seconds. Um, so in my mind, if you're running into the, the grocery store or in 7-Eleven to get a cup of Mountain Dew or a cup of coffee or waiting for your kids at the school, you should definitely shut your car off. Mm. And Matt Pacenza, this is something that I guess would be handled um, locally, or is this something that could could be run at the legislature? Yeah, I mean, there we have a Salt Lake City, I believe, and county ordinances, and, and they actually have some fairly significant holes in them. One of them is that they allow people to continue to idle above 30, I'm sorry, below 32 degrees, and so given the timing of our winter inversions and the weather patterns that tend to be associated with them, that's that's not ideal. Um, they also allow people to, you know, idle in like uh, drive-throughs and driveways and a bunch of other locations that sort of cut the effectiveness of that. But ultimately, I think most people that look at this say that those those ordinances are more about education than perhaps the reality of sort of tickets being handed out and people being sort of forced to change behavior. So, you know, the more you can put the message in people's head that you can make a difference, whether that's not burning wood or you know, driving less or idling less or choosing to take transit or all of that. Like, we're all better off when that happens. So that's, that's that I think you could argue is actually the most significant benefit of those ordinances. Uh, Bruce in, um, well, so Bruce, did that, uh, let, let's see, Bruce is up next, I believe. Uh, thanks, Tom, by the way, for that for that question. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that uh, Logan's ordinance drops that temperature from 32 to zero, so I think that would help a little. Ah, yeah. They're t- tough people up there. They're tough, yeah. tough types in Logan, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> thanks, Thank Tom. You. Appreciate that. Uh, Bruce and Hiram, uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yes, my, my question relates to ozone in the atmosphere, and in years past they've worried about the ozone hole in the upper atmosphere caused by fluorocarbons, and then uh, you talk about ozone being generated in the lower atmosphere as a bad thing, and I wonder if you can discuss the incompatibility of those two ideas. Who'd like to take that one? Uh, yeah, I can, I can handle that, I think. Um, ozone in the, in the upper stratosphere is beneficial because it blocks ultraviolet rays uh, from penetrating down to the surface of the Earth. In the lower atmosphere where we live and breathe, uh, it affects us directly. It is a very strong oxidant, and so once it enters the body, it's what it does. It oxidizes whatever it comes in contact with. So when we breathe it in, it's bad, but when it's up in the upper stratosphere protecting us from the the ultraviolet light, it's it's good. Mm. And ozone is just Does one of those the major— the ozone in the lower atmosphere migrate up to the upper atmosphere? 
It's a very, very slow process. Uh, so most of the stuff that's down in the lower atmosphere stays down here and reacts down here near the surface. Up in the upper atmosphere, there is several other mechanisms, chemical mechanisms, for actually forming the atmosphere, for forming the ozone at that level. Thanks, Bruce. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, let's, uh, let's, we have another uh, email. I want to get this in. Uh, Blythe in Logan. Uh, says that she's concerned about the impact of non-vehicular motors like lawnmowers, weed whackers, etc. What do you What do you think? Uh, yeah, uh, that those can be problems, uh, primarily summertime problems, and in areas that have summertime ozone issues, those are control strategies just to going after those. Uh, one example I, I that we can add. Oh, go uh, ahead. Yeah, yes, Matt. Go ahead. Yeah, I can just say it is one of the one of the pieces of the legislation that that has passed the committee and now awaits the. Full House of vote is oh, from Representative Patrice Arendt, and uh, Patrice's bill would establish a fund to sort of encourage folks to trade in the sort of dirty old two-stroke engine gas-burning versions of that equipment for cleaner electric mostly stuff. So it is important. I think some folks have a reaction of like, oh gosh, how much can my one little leaf blower matter? But I, I'm sure your guest already said this, you know, there are literally a million sources and we just sort of need to go after all of them. And so it may seem less significant than, let's say, a refinery or, you know, the world's largest open pit copper mine, and they are less significant, but, you know, we, we, we're at a point where we kind of need to go after everything. So it, getting that equipment off the street matters, and, and there are programs in place to help do that, and hopefully those programs are about to get a little more money. Mm. Let's, uh, I just want to ask my guests to each take maybe uh, uh, 45 seconds. We're near the end of the program. This is what Derek, he, near the end of his email, um, he says, I'm sure that local universities and atmospheric monitoring agencies have uh, some knowledgeable folks who could paint a clear and accurate picture of tangible steps that our citizens and local representatives could aim to address more aggressively. Uh, and so we, we have such folks. Maybe starting with uh, Roger Coulomb, uh, you know, tangible steps, any, anything that we, we ought to attack well, we've, we've already talked about the low-hanging fruit, uh, idling, um, automobile emissions, um, identifying the many point sources. Um, and so we, I think we're, we're heading in that direction. You know, some of us wish it had happened sooner, but uh, better, better now than never. Mm -hmm. Randy Martin, just very briefly. Yeah, I think it's just we need to have the awareness that we are all part of the problem and we all got to be part of the solution. Uh, from driving our cleanest automobiles to limiting the number of miles we drive, as well as making sure that any other activities we participate in or businesses that we frequent are also on board with uh, helping out. And just a, a minute uh, for Matt Pachenza. What what's, should be at the top of our priority list? Yeah, I think that the gentlemen have already mentioned vehicles, and clearly those are both the biggest source and the one where we can have the most impact. We got new federal rules yesterday, tier three rules that are going to really help, but now we have to make sure that Utah's refineries do supply us this cleaner gas we need. Um, the second one I'd mention is wood burning. We, we have some increased evidence that wood burning alone in winter months can be 5 to 15 percent of the overall emissions uh, contribution, so we really need to be discouraging folks from burning wood at all during the winter. And then the last one I would have mentioned is that we do think we can go further to crack down on point sources on industry. And this is less of an issue, certainly, for you folks up in Cache County. But down in, in the Salt Lake Valley, you know, we do have some major industry. They do contribute, and we do think they can go further and, and put in place, you know, stricter and more cutting-edge pollution control technology. So okay. we will be approaching the Air Quality Board in the coming months. And go to hillutah.org to find out more. 
Thank you. Appreciate that. Matt Pachenza with Heal Utah. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Roger Coulomb, thanks. My pleasure. And uh, Randy Martin, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, thanks to my producers, uh, Katie Swain and Bennett Purser. Thanks to all of you for participating. Uh, Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and your local office of AARP Utah, a nonpartisan organization helping people 50 and over improve their lives through its advocacy for health care reform, social security, and consumer protection in Utah. Information is at aarp.org ut. Commentator Thad Box. Salt Lake County Attorney Sim Gill recently made national headlines when he declared a policeman's killing a person resisting arrest was not justified. Almost every town has a SWAT team, and stories of police killing someone is commonplace. But that doesn't mean it is right, or that it has to be. When I was a senior in high school, my buddies and I drank cherry coke in the highway grill on the main drag of our little town. A pot-bellied old man with a star on his chest and a blackjack in his pocket stopped to chat. He was Milt Sehan, the town marshal. Milt had been the town's only cop for as long as I could remember. Some people considered him an unnecessary expense. The county sheriff was called if a serious crime was committed. From our table, he went to one filled with merchants, then to his stool at the counter where he sipped coffee. A bunch of rowdy boys left the cafe. Motors roared, wheels screeched, gravels hit the side of the building. Two cars raced down the highway. The cafe owner rushed over to Milt, asking why he was sitting there when those crazy boys were breaking the law. Milt said, I know who they are. If I chase them, they might turn the car over and kill somebody, or kill themselves. They'll probably be back before I finish my coffee, and I can take care of them then. If not, I know where to find them. In these days of SWAT teams, tasers, police officers being killed, and cops killing those who they try to arrest, we forget there are many good officers who seldom make the news. They are part of the community, know the people they serve, and no service means keeping people out of jail as well as locking them up. Are not an expense. They are priceless. This is Thad Box. KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM HD1 Logan.